Hello friends, this is the AlphaList podcast. I am your host Toby. The goal of the AlphaList podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. In the red ocean of company podcasts, one has recently caught my attention. It's the Code-Centric Culture and Career Podcast. But before we dive in, a heads up. This podcast is in German. What sets this podcast apart? It's not the typical corporate noise we've all grown accustomed to. The folks at Codecentrics are doing things differently. Instead of being drowned in promotional jungles, the employees themselves get a voice sharing honest, unfiltered insights into their day-to-day -day lives in IT consulting. From fun and profit of project business to the struggles with imposter syndrome, right through to the challenges and rewards of parental leave in the consulting world. But what I truly appreciate about Codecentric's approach is their commitment to authenticity. Authentic communication is the heart of what they do. They are not there to put on a show or bombard listeners with ads. They are laying their culture out in the open, unafraid to discuss both their strengths and areas of growth. For those who value true stories and insights, the Codecentric Culture and Career Podcast is not just another recommendation. It's a must-listen. Give it a try and spend an hour listening. It's worth it. Just use Spotify or your usual podcast platform and search it or go to link.alphalist.com cc to do so. Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby, and today with me is Melissa Perry. I was really looking forward to this podcast. She's strategic advisor, CEO of Product Institute, um, and author of um, a few books that a few of us should read. <laughs> um, she, she's advising many SaaS and, and Fortune 500 companies with her company. And the books that we should all read is, first, Escaping the Build Trap, I know, um, For, for whom the like now you hear the bell ringing uh, because that's really a problem of, of many of us and a book on product ops called product operations um, she is board member of meister labs and a former board member of forster which was sold to press genie and she also acted as senior lecturer at harvard business school teaching product management ran a consulting team working with inside partners to help their portfolio companies with product strategy and hiring chief product officers. Wow. <laughs> Welcome, Melissa. I'm really glad to have you here. Um, did I introduce you correctly? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was good. Great, great. Um, so, first of all, I, I saw you also like started off at least as a as, as software engineer. Uh, can you tell us a bit more? I had a short stint. Yeah, yeah. a short stint. Like, can you, can, you, can you maybe elaborate a bit on your... Like, let's say nerd journey like um, I, I guess you don't really call yourself a nerd um, <laughs> or or a geek 
but 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 yeah, how did you get into that? Um, definitely a nerd. Um, <laughs> I remember I was like. 12 years old and I ran around telling everybody I was going to be a computer engineer one day. So like definitely been a nerd since I was very, very young. Um, I just had it in my head that this was what I was going to do. And I, I loved computers. I loved working on computers. I don't think I went as deep as some of the people I've met who've been coding since they were like two, but, um, but I just loved things that had to deal with technology. So I ended up studying uh, operations research and information engineering in school and uh, I went to, uh, before that too, I went to a high school called High Technology High School. So maybe that's where my nerd journey starts because our mascot was an atom. Like we had no animals, we had no sports team, but it was an engineering high school. And we um, yeah, had the atom as a mascot, which was pretty funny. Uh, and there I got exposed to lots of different types of technology and engineering. So we had like no liberal arts um, electives. It was all technology related. And I started to really fall in, in love with things like Photoshop there. I started competing in Technology Student Association, it was called. Um, and I was taking a lot of um, intro to programming classes and all these different things. And when I went to college, um, I ended up going to Cornell and I studied operations research um, and information engineering, which was kind of like, they called it the businessy engineering, let's put it that way. But it was this combination of like stats and um how it applies back to business and a lot of math, which is funny because I re don't really love math. Uh, but I like the way that it applied to real life uh, problems. The thing that happened there is I had to learn all these random programming languages in these classes to do our homework. So we had to learn R when like there was no books on R. And they had a PDF that was like 10 pages long that told you how to do <laughs> these functions. And we had to go in and try to do our homework in our stats classes using R. And we took a bunch of programming classes there, but I always went, I don't want to be a programmer. I want to do something else. I want to go into banking. I want to do something like that. And I ended up um, getting my job as a first, as a product manager working for um, Capital IQ because I had an engineering background. I had a design background with Photoshop and I was working for like this marketing um, around the campus. And um, I had a business background with my major as well. And they said, oh, you do all those three things, like you can make a great um, product manager, which we called a business analyst at the time. And that's where I learned this very like waterfall style of um, product management. And I said, that's cool. Um, I really enjoyed doing it. Uh, it was very requirements driven, like go talk to the salespeople, figure out what we need to build, mock it up into these beautiful, long, you know, specs, ship it over to the engineers, never talk to the engineers, <laughs> and then go about your day. And uh, that's how that's how I got introduced to product management. Um, I ended up leaving there and becoming a software developer at Barclays Capital because nobody knew what I did. <laughs> so I was telling people this was my job, this is what I was doing, and there was no roles open at the time in New York City for product managers. Um, nobody kind of knew what that role was, and. Uh, people weren't, frankly, paying for them. They were paying for software uh, developers. So my roommate was making a ton of money as an engineer. And I said, you know, I, I learned coding in school. Let me, let me go try it. So I went to the bank to be a software engineer, and I hated it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, just viscerally hated it. I did it for about a year, and the whole time I kept weaseling my way back into product management. And my boss was like, nope. You can't be a product manager here until you have seven years of experience as a software developer. And I kept saying, that's BS. Um, I'm just going to do it. Like, 
nobody else is doing it. And it's true. Like we didn't really have a lot of people doing product management there. So I just weaseled my way back into it. And eventually I left there and joined a startup as a product manager. So that's how I did coding for a little bit. Um, I would say I am an awful software engineer. I haven't, I read code all the time. I haven't touched code though, like to edit it um, in a long time. So don't even ask me about what I could possibly program today. <laughs> and, and and when did you decide to become, let's say, a, a teacher um, as, as you, you teach many people and, and help many people to do their job better? Yeah, um, I was uh, working at uh, Open Sky, which was the startup I joined. And um, there we, we started to learn agile methodologies. So that was the first place I got introduced to it, uh, which was fantastic. And I talk about this a lot in my talk on escaping the build trap. But what happened was like, Our team was just not working well together. We were working in a very waterfall mode. Um, all my developers were in Nashville and they were super, super smart. There were so much, such better developers than I ever were. But, uh, and I was building these giant spec docs and like handing them off to them and they refused to read them. <laughs> didn't want to, didn't want to go through it. And then they were like, I'm going to build what I want. So we got into these large arguments about it. And uh, we had somebody there who was like, I got hired also as an agile coach. So do you do you guys want to try this? And we were like, you know what? Anything's better than what we're doing right now. This sucks. Like, frankly, we don't like each other. Um, let's give it a shot. And that introduced us to this new concept of like just working and collaborating so much better together. We didn't use like a very dogmatic scrum process or anything. It was just more focused on, we had like, we had a backlog. I never got a title of a product owner because I was just a product manager. Um, and we get together and we talk about the work we were going to do. And it made a lot of sense. And we just got better and better as a team. We found out we all really liked each other a lot, um, but it was probably one of the most impactful teams I've worked on. And we just got really good at shipping awesome products. And while we were doing that though, I start, we started to build some of these things. And it was really at the early days of when Google Analytics came out, there were um, a couple, not many analytics systems, honestly, but like mm -hmm. just a few. Mm -hmm. Mixpanel was still around back then. Mm -hmm. And we started to plug them into the products we were building about like a year into this. And I was so excited because I was like, oh, I can see if people are using my product. I like this. And I went back and checked. I remember after one of these releases that we've been working on for a long time, making like a new product and nobody was using it. And that's when I started to go, I'm like, what? I'm like, what are we doing, right? What, what, what have we been doing for the last year if nobody's using this stuff? Have I been using any of our products? And that really got me into this mindset of how do we make sure people use things um, before we invest in building them for so long mm. or mm. before we go down that path? Mm. And I got introduced to lean startup concepts then. I went to um, a workshop over the weekend and it was mostly people trying to build startups, but I went, oh, I can use all this experimentation stuff for what I do as a product manager. I brought it back to the team and we got really good at testing and killing, frankly, a lot of the ideas in the company um, and finding ones that would be successful. And we used a lot of good analytics and a lot of good data to inform what we were doing and what we wanted to do. And my boss at the time, um, he was like, I don't know anybody else who's doing it this way. You should teach this. And there was a Uh, well, what you call it, like a, on this platform called Skillshare, which looks very different now. It looks almost like Udemy. But in the time, you could go teach live classes around New York City and people could pay like 20 bucks to come. So uh, I said, I don't know if anybody would be interested in learning about this, but I'll try. And I put, um, you know, a short session into kind of what I would call lean product management 
to do at night in a Wix. Wix had an office next door to ours. So we'd go to Wix and, and do classes at night for like two hours on that. And a lot of people started signing up and saying that they were really interesting in it. So that was like my first foray into it. And from there, um, I was like, can I put it online? So I put it online at Skillshare at one point and I started speaking at conferences. I, I met somebody on, started talking about it on Twitter. Somebody asked me to come speak at a conference about it. So I did it there. And then I got invited to some more conferences, started writing on it a lot. And that's kind of what kicked off everything that I do today. And, um, and that also led you to, 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 to writing the, the, like the book escaping the bill trap, I guess. Um, yeah. What do you, what do you think about um, what what you just described as like really like statistics driven, metrics driven product? Um, what do you think about um, product discovery and really talking to your customers uh, about what they want um, and 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 how in comparison? Like so important. Yeah. Like I I think product management is this careful combination of always balancing the qualitative with the quantitative. And it's about synthesizing a ton of data and trying to figure out which direction do we go in. And the way that I think about it with the quantitative side is that by looking at good data, it can spark the questions that we need to go answer through qualitative research, or we go the other way. We're talking to customers, they say something interesting. We're like, huh, I wonder how much that applies to other people. And then we can go into the quantitative to see it if it actually spreads right? Like if there's any justification on it. So for me, balancing those two things is really important, and especially in product discovery. There's no substitute for not talking to your customers. Mm. Uh, a lot of companies I go into have been driven by, you know, trying to make these really cool products or these really scalable products. Um, and we get caught up in our own visions. And it's what I, what I write about in Escaping the Bill Trap, right? We get up caught up in our own visions about what is good because we start building for ourselves or we start building for internal stakeholders. And we don't stop to think about how are people actually using our products and what do they really want? And is there something that is in here that we can just like, you know, pull out this little thread on and see if there's another opportunity to solve that for other people? So that's why I think no matter what, um, you need to balance that qualitative and that quantitative. Uh, and product discovery is essential to getting things done. And it all skews depending on how much discovery you need to do, right? So with some some initiatives that we work on, there's high amounts of uncertainty. Like we have no idea what the user problem is. We don't know how we're going to solve it. We don't know what other people are doing with it. We got to do a lot of work there to actually discover those things. Other ones, we know what the problem is. People have been complaining about it. We've got 50,000 points of data, right? We may need to go in there and confirm or learn something about how they're using it. And then we can solve it. It might be a quick fix. So maybe product discovery is a little shorter on those cycles. But I think you can't get out of product discovery when you're dealing with uncertainty. That's why it's really important. Mm -hmm. and, and and how do you see that, um, like coming to the build trap, that, 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 that issue, let's say, that many leaders and founders, and yes, I sometimes count myself in, are often pushing for for implementation of ideas they they just had and they just think are brilliant um, and, and and no one else had and their customers don't know about and um, they can't ask their customers to get their opinion like what, what, what do you think about that like how, where's the common ground and um, and and how do you overcome that? I think what people don't maybe take for granted and I did too when I was first starting it out. Let me put it that way because I hear this from a lot of product managers. They're like, oh my leaders 
you know, they don't want to listen to customers. They have their own visions. They won't go do discovery. They don't want to do this. And I feel like the way that we approach it, especially with a founder or CEO, and I work with a lot of founders and I have a lot of empathy for them. Mm -hmm. um, But a lot of times what we approach it like is by telling them, no, your idea sucks. (laughs) I need to go do it my way. Right. And I see a lot of people communicate that type of thing Mm -hmm. to them Mm -hmm. or, oh, we need to go do discovery on this Mm -hmm. or, oh, we need to go do these tactical things. Mm -hmm. And the way that I've approached it successfully and I see that other people approach it successfully is instead come from a place of curiosity right? You come to them and you say, hey, that's a great idea. Like, can you tell me, like, how did we come up with it, right? Um, who's who's the target persona in here? Uh, what do you think they're doing? Like, have you talked to any users about it? Can I follow up with them so I can just dive in a little bit deeper and make sure that I'm building it well? And you ask clarifying questions that help you understand, is this something that somebody came up with in two minutes, you know, off the side of their desk? Or is it actually based on research? Or is it based on research that they misinterpreted? even, right? That happens a lot as well. And those kind of questions kind of bring you back into where they got those ideas from. And then I follow that up with, okay, if we do this thing, the solution you handed me, let's say, what will happen, right? Like, what does success look like for you? Like, I'm, I'm, you, you act bought in. You're like, let's do it. I'm a team player. I really want to do these things cool feature idea. Like, I just want to get up to speed so that I have the same threshold of knowledge as you do so that I can do a good job on this. Walk me through some of this decision-making just so I, you know, so I'm up to speed. And by doing that, you start to uncover where there might be some gaps, right? And where some of these things were opinions or some of these things were facts. But a lot of times these solutions come to us not entirely void of facts. Like, they probably have a couple pieces of data in there Mm -hmm and then jump to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. And you still want to know what that data is, because if you understand that and work backwards, now you could start to experiment around it and try to figure out, is that the best solution, Mm -hmm. right? Is that problem really well known? And then what you do is you go out and you start working on it. And then you come back to them and say, hey, like I've been diving in, I've been building this stuff. Here's what I learned, right? Um, This solution might not be the best solution for it, but I did find something that people were really excited about. And here's all my data to show that this is the way that we go. And if you approach it that way, what I found is that a lot of leaders, they're there to hit goals, right? And if you understand what they're measured on from a goal perspective, and you can help them reach those goals, a lot of times they're not going to fight you too hard. And I'm saying a lot of times, not always, right? But like a lot of times they're not going to fight you too hard on changing direction a little bit, Mm. right? But where I see them get really upset is when you dismiss their opinions because they didn't do it your way, Mm. right? Because they came to you with a solution instead of a problem. And I do believe leaders should always be coming to you with a problem and not a solution. But the way that you handle that, the time that they come with the solution, is going to set the tone for how they're going to collaborate with you later on, right? And that's where I think a lot of people make mistakes is that they get very dismissive, when when leaders approach them with with things and they don't try to think about what kind of knowledge do they have that I don't have, mm. right? Mm. How can I set this right? How can I help them, you know, understand what I can understand or how do I help go do that? And I also see a lot of product managers out there too just ask for permission too much to go do things rather than just doing their job. Mm. So it's like, take it and then go do discovery. Don't tell them you're doing discovery. Just go do it, <laughs> right? And then come back to them with the data. Keep them updated. Keep them checked in. Mm. Like, you don't need to go out and ask somebody, can I do my job every single day, right? You shouldn't have to. And the ones that I see succeed 
even in the most, you know, transformed big organizations where this was hard to do, they don't ask for permission. They just do it. And then they demonstrate how they did it well. And they, they manage those communications and they manage those relationships really well. So nobody looks at them and goes, oh, they're just stirring the pot and like being annoying, right? They're mm. not telling them no, they're just going to go tell them do that again. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and then, uh, yeah, you, you, you kind of turn around, um, the, 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 the stream a little, right. And, and, and people will approach you again and again. Right. Um, is, yeah, is that because you're collaborative? <laughs> Absolutely, and 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 that's also how how the world works, right? Like you you have people that maybe are quickly into uh, in solution space and 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 maybe also like juggled a bit on ideas and 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 uh, yeah, need your support with that. And, and I think that's how you support them best. And is that um, a part of how we start escaping the world trap? Like, I mean, <laughs> coming back to that book title, um, is it the idea of, of, of looking at agile organizations and, and, and seeing little waterfalls and then um, trying to, 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 to help um, to, to get out of the, that, those waterfalls or what is it? I think that's definitely part of it. Um, I remember I was keeping the bill trap because I was working with a lot of organizations to come in and train their product managers. So like back around 2014, 2015, um, I was you know working in New York City and I get called into some massive organizations that were going through transformations to help them learn better product management. Um, and at the time, like I was doing, I, I've always also by the way, I've been like a hybrid product and UX person. So like I was doing both those sides. I was also teaching classes on UX for a while. And it was because nobody believed <laughs> that they needed a product manager. So I get really excited when people started to call me for product management training. I was like, sweet, finally, right? Like this was my ultimate goal because I believed in it so much. But a lot of people realized they need UX design. A lot of people didn't realize they need product management at the time. So Agile comes out, all these organizations start transforming. Now they're like, hey, I've got... 3,000 product managers in my organization who've never done this before, except we called them product owners, right? Can you come train them in what they should be doing? So I'd come in, I trained them. And in some situations in those organizations, I'd stay on and coach for a while. And what would happen is people would start to hit a wall, right? So I can teach them how to experiment. I can teach them how to understand personas, talk to customers, make a roadmap, all those things. And then they'd try to go implement it and they just kind of butt up against other parts of the organization that were preventing them from doing great work. And it really came down to, you know, understanding that process, but also understanding how product strategy should work in an organization and how we need to be focused on outcomes um, and making sure that leaders understood that as well and how that flowed. And then it also came up to being, you know, set up well from an organizational design perspective. I worked with a lot of people who were, you know, they'd, they'd make almost component teams, right? So you'd be the product manager over an API for login. And then I was like, okay, cool. Can you like, and then this person, this actually happened, was at a bank and training people. And there was a product owner for APIs for login. And she said, I don't have time to go talk to customers because I'm writing user stories 40 hours a week. And I was like, on what? Like, right? Like, what are you writing user stories on? I was like, can people log in or can they, is this a crisis right now? And she's like, oh no, they can log in, like everything works. So I'm like, so what are you working on, right? 
because they interpret it as, let me cover every little piece of software we have in the bank, right? And make sure there's fine-tuned ownership over every little tiny component. So we'd run into organizational structures that way that prevented people from being able to escape that either because now you've got like 18 people dictating down the course of where you're going and you're starting to separate like people talking to customers and people doing product management or product ownership rather. And that wasn't good. So everywhere I turned, there was more of these systemic issues um, besides just the process of product management. And that's really what led me to write Escaping the Build Trap because it wasn't just about, um, hey, I took like a CSPO course and I've got product people now. It was more about how a whole organization needs to really shift the way they think about building products and the way they think about incorporating software into their strategies to get out of that. So this is definitely like one piece of it, that collaboration and talking to people. And that's how I say, like, if you don't have any clarity on your strategy or you feel like your leaders are not providing the clarity needed, like go ask those questions that I was going over. But then start to think about how do we implement good strategy frameworks? How do we think about implementing good organizational design? How do we skill up the people in the organization to do each one of their roles well um, from a product manager to a chief product officer? And then also how do we implement product operations that helps us do our job and get the information we need so that we're not like bothering developers every three seconds to you know, give us data so that we can make a decision. That That's the type of things I think that get us out of the build trap. It's thinking about this holistically as this is not just a, you know, a role that we play because of agile. It's actually a very important function when it comes to software building um, to connect our business and our software together in some kind of streamlined way that, that makes it operate. Um, so to me, that that's what it's been about. And I'm happy to say, I think like I've been doing this for like almost 10 years. It's way better now than it used to be. <laughs> like, like I think so many of those organizations have um, made a lot of leaps and bounds since, um, you know, 2013, 2014. It's way better than it is. Some places are still struggling a little bit, but as a collective, I'm really happy with the progress. Tired of stifting through countless resumes and struggling to find the right tech talent? Look no further, WorkGenius has some exciting news to share with you. WorkGenius has acquired ExpertLead. Now they bring even more efficiency to your hiring process. Real-time live coding assessments for all. Whether you're a startup or an established enterprise, WorkGenius is now also here to turbocharge your hiring process. Say goodbye to the guesswork and endless interviews. WorkGenius matches your candidates with experts, saving you time and getting you top talent. Win-win. How it works? Share your tech job applicants. WorkGenius takes care of the rest. Your candidates? They are in the hands of seasoned pros. WorkGenius matches them with experienced senior developers and puts them through tailored, enjoyable and fair technical interviews. Your company gets the cream of the crop, the most sought-after talents in the industry, and you save your hardworking tech and HR teams valuable time. If you want to try it out, visit link.alphalist.com slash work. And um, the, 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 the person you, you just described having, like being responsible for product management for, let's say, password forgotten and, and login, <laughs> is that 
an effect of, 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 of overhiring that we also saw in the recent year, years and, and so many companies and over like over complicating things. Um, and uh, is, I think that was before that. Yeah. It's a, a lot of organizations. I think what happened with especially large legacy organizations like your banks, your insurance mm -hmm. companies, they had a lot of people, right, working there in all different types of roles and they're massive organizations. And I think as we got better at delivering software, you just don't need that many people if you're doing strategy and prioritizing mm -hmm. correctly. And what they did is they tried to move everybody into a product owner or a developer role, mm. right? And they try to get coverage over all of their systems, mm. every little single piece of it mm. from a component perspective. And now what you're seeing is they're, they're actually pulling back from that, which is good. Um, so I don't think it was a recent thing. I think this was like a, a symptom of trying to organize themselves into, you know, agile teams, into a way of not IT over here, business over here, right? It was, okay, we need to cover everything. We need to have an owner over everything, mm. right? That's why I hate the term product owner. Um, but they they looked at it from a component perspective instead of from a strategic perspective or a value stream perspective. Mm. And that gives you a lot more leverage. And if you have good prioritization, you know, you're not going to be working on every little single piece of the platform, but that's okay because some stuff should not be touched. Like it's, it's good. It's running. It hit its goals. Like, why are you trying to optimize it to death? Like it's been optimized, like move on. And that, that's the piece where I think we had a lot of people for a long time. And now you're starting to see it slimmed down quite a bit, but that was always going to be a natural piece of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like um, you, you mentioned banks, but I also see it in, in SaaS a lot, right? Um, that in the, the recent yeah. years where like growth was most, most important, um, KPI revenue growth. Um, that that many companies overscaled their their staff and also product teams and engineering teams and overcomplicated their stack and this is kind of fortunately like moving back back a little to like really like hey what's important like should we be working on this yeah. should we have a focus on this or or not is is that like a trend you also see like as you as you advise yes. SaaS companies these days. Yeah, with SaaS companies, what almost always happens, and this always, like, I saw this pattern a lot with the high growth companies, especially when we were working with Insight and and I work with some other um, PE and VC firms as well. They, uh, when you found a company, you typically go, I need a bunch of people to build these things, right? So you hire a bunch of engineers. And once you find product market fit, um, optimizing that product market fit and, and continuing to work on that product usually will set you up pretty well for a while. Right? Like you've got some work there. You've got customers coming in, you're growing. Customers have a lot of feedback. They have a lot of suggestions. It's pretty easy to figure out what we need to do next. But then what happens is your company like hits this kind of plateau area, right? Where growth is starting to slow. Um, and you need to explode because at this point, you probably raised a bunch of VC money. You've got like that three to five year holding pattern and they want to see triple, 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 right? Like over those times. And now you got to basically figure out how you make decisions quickly on your product strategy and what is our product strategy going to be that's going to allow us to triple or double or whatever your growth goals are. Um, and what these organizations tend to do is they look around and they're like, wow, we have a hundred developers and absolutely no product people. And what have the developers been working on? And it used to be easy because you took a bunch of customer requests and you gave it to the developers and things were going really well because 
there was a lot of demand for your product, but it just hit this point where you start to saturate it and you're building whatever. Again, you're stuck in the build trap and you're not really thinking about strategically, how do we grow from there? And that's what I typically see happen with SaaS companies. And I think for the last couple of years as well, like we did hire a ton of people because we're at growth at all costs, right? We weren't thinking about profitability. And I think with the, you know, the rule of 40 that, that uh, all our VCs and, and PE firms look at, they were kind of like, oh, I don't really care about that, you know, EBITDA portion of it, just like grow 40X, yeah, it's right? Just either or, right? It's way. just either or. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> like do that 40%, right? On the side instead. Um, and they saw it totally as either or instead of like a balanced thing. Uh, and that I think caused people to go out there and just hire like crazy. And then when the market went nuts last year, was that this year? Oh my God, it was this year, wasn't it? The Silicon, Silicon Valley Bank was this year. Wow, my brain is like, <laughs> I can't, but so much has happened this year. It was it's crazy. this year, yeah. Um, it was this year. So what happened this year was uh, everybody realized that that's not sustainable. And, you know, when you go through a slight downturn like that, now it's profit. So a lot, I think I see a lot of PE firms and a lot of VC firms be a lot more diplomatic about where they want that 40 to come from. Like, you know, they want it to, to not be all on the growth side. Um, they prefer it not to be all on the growth side because they're looking for sustainable businesses. And I think that's where now we see people pulling back smaller teams, those types of things. I also think that growth of those teams is a great way to not do what you need to do as a leader, which is strategic prioritization, right? If I, if I don't want to do my job and actually go in and do all the hard work it takes to create a product strategy and prioritize, I'll just hire 10,000 people to work on everything right? So I don't have to choose. And I also saw a lot of that, right? They were like, instead of choosing and trying to figure out where we double down, let's just do it all. Why not? Like there's money to be raised. You know, cash was free out there for a long time. Why not? So so that was also something that was happening. And and, and you just mentioned product strategy a few times. What's your perspective on it? Like um, how many people actually have a real product strategy and and, and how does the, the ideal product strategy and, and framework for that look like? Yeah. So uh, from a perspective of who's got good product strategy, it's really hard to tell because a lot of companies have been wildly successful um, building off that original strategy, like I talked about. And what I, what the way that I think about it is that if you are successful, you had to have a good product strategy at one point. Let's put it that way. The problem with product strategy is that it becomes obsolete over time, right? And if you're not updating it, that's where you'll go downhill. So um, most successful companies we've seen out there had a great product strategy at one time. Whether or not they're still successful after that strategy becomes obsolete usually depends on how many people they can retain and if there's competition in the market and how big they get, right? And many large companies can avoid having great product strategies because they already have like 100% market share, right? Many people are not leaving, they're not, you know, they're there. They have a captive audience. And they see that success also as, oh, I don't have to do much work here. Growth stage companies really need to have a solid product strategy. Um, and that's why I think that having like a great chief product officer there is so important for growth stage companies. But if you're in that high growth phase, you need to make sure you can get to that large market share. And you're usually not there yet. Um, so you have to be able to point everybody in one direction and find that consistency because you can't waste time going through arguments or, or trying 18,000 different things and having like all your teams split on all different things. 
And what happens is if you do have that, you end up like peanut buttering stuff where you have like one team working on like something really big and impactful and another team working on something big and impactful and you're not putting any good meat or momentum behind it. So nothing really gets done, right? Nothing gets out to customers fast. You're not really looking at the signals. So what product strategy really means to me is how do we get everybody in the organization aligned around the decisions of where we want to invest and how we want to grow, right? So when we look at strategy for a company, it actually starts with the company strategy. And then the product strategy is how do I manifest that company strategy with our software products or, or the products that we sell to customers, right? So it gets a little more tangible um, and it helps set all the teams in the right direction. And from like a company strategy, what's usually missing there is, and again, really in almost all, all companies, uh, but it's this focus on what I call strategic intents. And that's like coming back to your three methods of how you're going to go after value for the company in the next, like, let's say two to three years. So that's bringing people around stuff like, hey, we want to expand geographically, right? Like that's our number one priorities. Like we need to expand geographically from the US into Europe. That's really what we're going to be focusing on. Um, and these are the metrics that we want to hit. Um, or I want to move up market into the enterprise right? That is our, our biggest thing. Like we got to move up market here. Um, or we need to retain our SMB market because it's churning like crazy. Like whatever it is, it's looking at, and I say there shouldn't be more than three um, because I've seen people try to do 12. Uh, that's the stuff that aligns the whole company, right? And it's not no long, it's no longer like, hey, sales needs this and product needs this and tech needs that. And everybody's got their own little, you know, fiefdoms and nobody's aligned at the top. Mm -hmm. What this does is it points everybody in the same direction. So that if sales comes over and says, hey, big customer is asking for this, we can say, does it help with these strategies? Or is this a situation where we're going to be in dire need of, you know, doing it? Otherwise, we're going to lose a lot of money. It helps you prioritize, right? It helps you with all those conversations about how we get there. So when we have that, now we look at this portfolio strategy and say, what are we going to do from a, a product perspective to help reach those goals. So for example, if our goals and our vision is to be able to, you know, be a global leader, what is that how does that look in our products, right? Like what types of things do we need to change? What do we need to build? What do we need to enter? Um if we go up to the enterprise, it's usually like a pretty pretty straightforward strategy, but like they they need reporting. They need uh we usually introduce a new persona of somebody being able to manage and report on things. Um they need, you know, usually APIs or integrations into their existing systems, they need better security, all these things. So that helps us manifest like, what does that really look like from a product and tech perspective um, to be able to go after those things? And the product strategy talks about, and the product portfolio like vision as well, talks about what does what do our software products working together do for each other? How do they deliver value? And to what types of customers to help reach that company vision, right? And how do we produce that value? So like, what do we literally do? What problems do we solve? How do we solve it? In which ways do we solve it that brings um, differentiation, right, to our product that's better than competitors, that's better than however anybody's doing it today? And like, what do we want to double down on there? And so from your perspective, it, it could be as good as three bullet points. Hey, this this is my strategy. This is what I want to do um, in the next three years. Let's say. Oh no, um. <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot more goes into it. So, like, 
So when I, I come into companies and I, I love, this is like my favorite part of um, working on boards and, and uh, doing advisory roles. Um, I love, and I, I love this part about working with Insight too. Like I love building good product strategies and working with people to do that. And it's never just me in a corner doing this. I like, like working with the executive team, the product managers to do it. But where we usually start from is like, okay, what's the vision of where the company is going? And if you don't have that vision, we got to go out there and, and try to figure out what it should be, right? So CEO is usually setting that, but they're talking to the rest of the C-suite to kind of put that together. Once we have that set, um, then we go to those strategic intents. And that actually needs to be done um, in two directions, right? Like the CEO usually has some good ideas of where they want to go. Like, let's say they want to say, let's go up market, but they can't say that without first looking at the product as well and saying, can we go up market in the short term, right? Should this be priority one or priority three? So then we got to go back into the product and say, are we well-suited to do that? And in order to do that, you need to, one, go out and see, like, do you have any traction in the enterprise today? So we're looking through data. We're trying to say, how many enterprises do we have on here? And then we're following that up with qualitative research as well and going to talk to those enterprises and saying, you know, why did you choose us? Um, how are you using us? Do you have plans to expand? Like what's not working? What is working? What else do you need? Right. We're, we're trying to gather what are they doing? And where's the value that we're providing? Mm -hmm. Then we're going to see if that applies to other people, right? Then we're going to, we're going to see if we can actually expand there. Um, but we need to make sure that it's something that we can do and that we're primed to do short-term versus long-term. And this is where I think like CPOs and CTOs become really critical in setting strategies, um, not just product strategies, but also company strategies in SaaS organizations or any organization, because it's not just a CEO sitting up there with a salesperson and saying like, yeah, let's sell into the enterprise. Like if you, and I've seen a lot of people make this mistake, right? They go up, up market too fast. The product's not ready for it. The enterprise people are not happy about it. And then they churn. And then you got a bad reputation in the market for not being enterprise ready. Right. Um, that's why it's got to be like a back and forth thing. So you're usually having these conversations about what can we do? What will it take? What will like, you know, are we primed to do this before you set those strategic intents? And you're also looking at like, what's our total opportunity value to do that, right? So there's a lot of like TAM analysis, SAM analysis that goes on into this as well. Um, understanding your current customers, understanding their personas, understanding that what products they're using, what products they're not using, why they're using it, right? So like tons of research. Then once we set those, we, we've already done a little bit of this, trying to set that strategy, right? But now we go into the, the portfolio strategy. And usually that company strategy comes down not just as a, you know, three things, but it's like, we write it out as a big vision for the company. And then we also write it out as, here's what I mean by going up market. These are the types of enterprises we want. This is where we provide value to them. Um, here's why they'll want to choose us. Here's like, here's how many we want to be able to accomplish, right? And this is what we mean and this is what we don't mean. So we explain each one of those goals. We usually end up writing that in a company-wide memo that's like two to three pages long. So we've got that. We deploy it down. We, we explain it to the organization. And then this is where product and tech comes together. And we say, all right, what do we need to do with our product portfolio to actually get there? So like, um, do we have to think about platform strategies? Have we done that before, right? Or do we need to think about um, shoring up different product lines? Do we need like a new product to be able to address some of this stuff? Do we need to think about how these integrate well together? Um, I've seen a lot of companies like successfully launch one product and then a second product, but not think about how they actually integrate together. Mm -hmm. 
this is your opportunity in that portfolio to think about how the, how you can leverage things across these products, how customers would really perceive value for it. So rewrite this portfolio vision specifically about like, what kind of products do we sell? Um, how do they produce value for our customers? What type of customers do we care about? And like, why, what problems we're solving for them? And like, what's the, why is our stuff better, right? Like, how are we going to win? And that could be either by the quality of the data or the way that we can produce insights for them or, you know, thinking about data platforms, but it could be a lot of different stuff. It could be you're easy to use. Um, it could be that you have different types of functionality that nobody else does. It could be that you integrate better than anybody else. Uh, whatever it is, right? Like that's what manifests out of that portfolio strategy. And then from there, now you create these initiatives that the teams go around, right? Which are the big pushes to actually go after that work. Mm -hmm. And it's the things where you release them and you can measurably say, yes, we're getting closer, right? So um, they're, they're big pieces of work uh, scoped into something that maybe is like six months long to, to a year long, or it could be a quarter long if you move really, really fast. But this is not per scrum team. This is usually a collection of people working towards a big initiative, right? Something that's going to help us reach that. And then the scrum teams are breaking that down into the actual features that they're going to be releasing for our customers. So it's kind of like building up into those big pushes to get there. So it's a lot of work to go up and down. And it's not usually just one person who's doing this, right? Like the, the CPO with the CTO is like kind of creating this product strategy part. They're deploying it down to usually product managers or product directors who are looking at these initiatives. They're coming up with it together. And then the teams are going to look at that and say, okay, here's the problems that I need to solve. Let me go and try to figure out what features or what types of solutions are actually going to be great there. Hello, it's me, Toby. Can you hear me? I was just making sure the sound is Zipgate worthy. After all, they have spent over 20 years obsessing over audio quality. It's only right that this podcast they are sponsoring is clear. Zipgate is a cloud-based all-in-one telephony solution that will satisfy pretty much every use case in your company. From sales to customer support, having a good connection with your customers has never been easier. The new Zipgate app comes with AI-powered features, noise cancelling, and a seamless integration with other business tools like all major CRMs. Your sales team will love it. Their intuitive user interface makes business calling even more efficient and is available pretty much on any device or operating system. Great for hybrid teams. Their features are so targeted, it's almost like they were listening in. Plus, as a German company, they know all your GDPR needs. Sounds good? Well, keep listening as it gets better. As an Alphalist CTO podcast listener, you get 500 euros worth of free credits when you sign up at link.alphalist.com slash zipgate and use the code zipgatealpha in the form there. So thanks a lot for that explanation. And, and, and how does product ops then enter the game like, uh, like can you yeah. maybe like quickly elaborate on the term as it's like not there for ages um and 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 uh, yeah yeah so product operations is really an enablement function for product management and the way that you should think about it is it helps to get the right information to the product people so that they can set the strategy it also helps communicate how our strategy is doing and monitoring it back out um and then it also helps us understand where we make strategic decisions and how the rest of the organization comes together to give input on the product and also to make sure that product is successful. So when we talk about 
product uh, operations, me and my co-author, uh, Denise Tills, uh, Tillis, uh, we are looking at three major categories in there. It's like one is data and insights, and it's about understanding the internal data you need to set strategy. So that's about getting stuff out of our current systems to look at it. So when I was talking about, for example, if we want to go into the enterprise, we need to see like, what's our distribution of customers currently between SMB, mid-market, and enterprise, right? And then also, what products are they using? Are the enterprise people buying all of our products? Or are they buying one of our products, right? Are they using some features or all of the features? Um, how are we churning by different types of customers, right? Um, if people are using certain types of features, are they less likely to churn, right? Um, and that's that information is actually usually stuck inside organizations. Mm. like, And it lives in 80 different types of software. So you can get uh, revenue data and customer data out of like Salesforce and then your, your revenue software or whatever you're using for accounting. Uh, then we've got usage metrics stuck in like an Amplitude or a Pendo or something or a mix panel. And then we've got, um, you know, team information and what people are working on in our JIRAs or our road mapping softwares. And what gets really interesting and what helps us with defining product strategy is when we can start to look at all those things together and do different cuts across those different systems to get the information that we need. And that's what the data and insights team really helps with. And ideally, this should be like a self-serve thing. We want to get to a point where, you know, we have repeatable dashboards on there. Um, I can give like a chief product officer some information on those things where we can go back and track without having to pull this out of systems like every single time, right? In a BI tool, how are our enterprises doing? Are we signing up more enterprises? Like, are they using these different features? How are we tracking on it? And we can start to see all those different cuts and they can get um, updated in real time. So this is not just about, one, this helps leaders like crazy because like I said, in SaaS companies and especially high growth companies, the biggest issue is not having access to data to make these decisions fast enough and know when to change course or when to continue. And that's what this can help with. Mm. So it's building, you know, good views for leaders to be able to make these decisions, but it's also informing the product managers about decisions on their level as well so that they can get in there and start to be able to see how their um, decisions are laddering up to business goals, right? And if they're actually achieving retention goals or if they're not achieving retention goals and things like that. So ideally, we put this into some kind of system that is repeatable mm -hmm. that we can keep monitoring. Mm -hmm. uh, the other piece of it is customer and market research. And this is more about aggregating qualitative research, again, to inform product strategy decisions and also help us keep in top, top of what customers are saying. So this is more about, okay, we have all this external research going on. We've got user research teams doing it. We've got product managers doing it. We've got sales doing it. We've got marketing doing it. We've got product market doing it, right? Like everybody's out there talking to people, support. How do we aggregate all those insights so that we can bring transparency to all the teams, right? We have a lot of times where sales and support have fantastic information and product management has no idea what they're saying because we don't have access to the same tools or it's not making its way back to the right people. And so fantastic ideas die somewhere in a, you know, a system, a support system that nobody has access to. So in this place, we're looking at things like streamlining user research. So if anybody's going out and doing user research, whether it's a user researcher or a product manager, how do we put all those insights into a repository so people can look at them later? Um, it's also about getting information from sales and support back into a system as well. So we can see what the feedback is from customers or what's you know, what's preventing people from buying, win-loss analysis, that type of stuff. Um, and it's also helping us make better 
um, contact with customers. So it could be things like setting up mechanisms of uh, getting out there and asking our customers, like, do you want to participate in mm. research? We do these types of experiments. We do these types of customer interviews. How often do you want to do it? And I've worked in companies where we've built databases of um, our customers once they opt into these things that the product managers and the user researchers and anybody can go out and contact them for the appropriate type of research. And they're not spending 40 hours a week just trying to recruit people or going in this back to the same company every single day because they have one contact there. So that type of stuff makes it easier and more effective for us to do customer research. But it's not doing the research for you, right? It's not a team of user researchers going out and doing it. It's it's making it more effective and enabling people in the company to do it themselves. So enablement, like let's say a platform team, you you often have in, in modern companies for, for, for IT stuff, um, more for product, right? So what, what do you mean for um, a platform team? Well, um, in many companies, you find these days in engineering, uh, a platform team that kind of enables the engineering team to do their work better. Oh, and you, I, get, I, I, I was just comparing yes. like both worlds. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's platform for product. Platform yes, for product. <laughs> and like, yeah. uh, how is that ideally it's, staffed? Like, is, is there like mm -hmm. common ground? Yeah. So the, la the last piece that we have on here too, just to, because there's three different types of personas for it is the, the process and governance yeah. piece. And this is more about, so this is our third pillar. This is more about um, your product, like standing up your product operating model. And when you think about a product operating model, it encompasses a lot of different things. So this is just one piece of it. But it, it's it's the thing that kind of oversees it and makes sure it's well, working well. And for a product operating model, like you need to be able to say like, how we define product strategy and how we make decisions, right? You have to also get the information in to make decisions and how do we do that? And then you have to talk about when do we make decisions, right? How do people work together as well? So this, this area is kind of drawing up like cadences for reviewing our product roadmaps and for aligning them back to the strategy and making sure that we're on the right path. What types of decisions do we make in each types of meetings? Um, who's invited to those meetings? How do we make them the most impactful so that we're not just doing a bunch of status updates? It's like we're getting work done in those meetings, right? I hate I hate meetings where you just go in and you listen to a lot of people just rhapsodize, like, here's all the stuff I'm building. Like, that's awful. It's it's about, if I have a bunch of leaders in the room, like, I want to come out with a decision, right? What types of decisions do we come out with and what kind of inputs do we put in? How often do we review it? How do we go that way? And usually it's it's targeted around different levels of strategy and different levels of communication, um, all the way back down to the to Scrum teams. So many organizations only operate with like a Scrum cadence, and that doesn't work mm. for leaders, right? Like that, that biweekly thing is not what leaders need. So it's like, what else do we need besides mm. that, right? How do we put the infrastructure around to make good product decisions? Mm. So there's that piece. There's also looking at, hey, how do we do like go to market? Um, we've got all these go-to-market teams. When do they plug into product? Uh, how do we make sure that they're plugging into product? How do they know when they're needed? How do they make sure that they're getting updated on what we're going to be building or what we're going to be releasing? How do we coordinate those types of things to make sure that our customers are enabled well? Um, it's also looking at how these other pieces of the organization plug in and how they work with product so that there's a consistent way of working. And it's not like if you're a salesperson, you have to understand 18 different ways of working to work with 18 different teams, right? There's there's something, some kind of consistency there. So it's about standardizing the stuff that makes us go faster and that's helpful. And it's about like roadmaps, for instance, um, but not over-standardizing every little process, right? It's about making things that are going to help cross-functional communication work more seamlessly. 
uh, and making sure that that's, there's our way of doing it, right? Like our company is like, this is how we do it. This is what we stand for. So with those three pieces, you do need like different types of people on the team for it. Typically product operations starts with one person, mm. and especially if you're in like a growth stage company. Almost all growth stage companies I see start with that data piece because they don't have it. If you do have it and you're fantastic at it, like obviously don't try to reinvent the wheel. But if you don't have it, I'd say like get somebody in with a good background on um, understanding data. They don't have to be a database mm-hmm. engineer, but it's like somebody who can interpret data, right? Who can work with the teams to be like, this is the stuff I need yeah. and this is how I can track yeah, it down yeah, in systems. Yeah. Like, you know, somebody who understands business intelligence tools. I, I would say maybe um, not customer ex- explicitly not the data engineer, right? Yeah. Because the data yes. engineer is normally interested yeah. in, in getting the data, but but not reading it, right? Yeah, so they're not, yeah, exactly. They're going to work with the data engineer to get mm-hmm. the data, but they're not, they're, the data engineer doesn't have to read it. This person is the person who's going to read it. They're going to build your dashboards. They're going to make sure that, um, for example, if you're you're an executive too, they help you build the board slides mm-hmm. and put all that data for the boards in dashboards so you can copy and paste it off. And you don't have to like redo your board slides every three months forever, which is always an annoyance. Um, so that that's the person who can help you understand and picture like, this is the information they want to portray. Here's visually how we can show it through data, right? And then they standardize it into tools. The customer market um, pers- market research person is more, usually comes from like a, a UX operations background or user research type background where they think about it from a process perspective. So they're like, how do I operationalize these things, right? Like, how do I empower people with it? So they have to have a good enough product mindset to think about building systems rather than one-off services but they're like building a system around it. And then lastly, on the governance piece, you usually have somebody with good product knowledge who's done that before, but they're more operationally focused. Um, And there's some great people out there who did start from a product management perspective. They, uh, like Christina Tuaro is a great example from Pendo. She, uh, She was a product manager and she saw all these things being broken around the organization where sales and product were not coming together to talk or to, you know, communicate things correctly. And she said, I want to fix it. And that's how she became the product operations um, person, the first person they had there. Now they have a huge team around Mm -hmm. it. But she was like, I want to help our product managers be better product managers. And that was like her goal, right? But she approached it from a product management mindset and she had enough skills to know what needed to be fixed, what needed to be corrected there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Best governance that you saw in in a product company, like um, how, how do leaders like ideally align with 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 the rest of the group like uh, do you have like best practice yeah the way that i think about it is um everything's done on a time horizon so if you think about like top down versus bottom, bottom up when do you need to meet leaders are typically meeting i think i think about it with like the ceo and the vp levels right like think about it at different levels getting together and meeting maybe director as well but um meeting to talk about like how is our product strategy helping us manifest our business goals, right? So we're going to get together on either a quarterly basis, probably a quarterly basis, just to say, hey, are we on track towards our, you know, what we wanted to do? And in that case, we're not looking at team level roadmaps. We're looking at like initiative level roadmaps. We're looking at like higher level roadmaps on that portfolio view across the portfolio and monitoring the outcomes 
of the strategic intents and of those initiatives, right? But we're not going to all the teams and saying, hey, we need to step through every single little feature that you're building. That should be rolled up into those initiatives and we need to communicate on that level. Mm. And that's where I see a lot of people get that wrong. They're they're kind of like talking super low feature level mm. about like a thousand different features that are getting mm. built instead of what that means for the business, right? And when we bring it up to that conversation, that helps us also talk about is anything changing in the market or competitor-wise that we need to account for? Um, are we progressing towards our goals like we thought? Um, are we hearing any feedback from our customers that are telling us we're not on the right path or that we are on the right path that we need to double down mm. on? So it helps you kind of monitor where you are on that process of reaching those strategic intents, which are long for, long-term. And ideally, you're not changing direction in those meetings often, right? But you may come out of there with like, hey, we need to reprioritize or we need to pause or we need to to restack some of this because something major happened, Mm, right? mm. So we want to look at those things often enough, but not every single day where we're changing direction all the Mm, time. mm. And then from a product team perspective, you're going to be looking at those initiatives to the team level roadmaps and talking about, are those on track, right? So that's probably going to be the VPs of product or the directors of product and their teams. And then we're going to look at that and say, are there any interdependencies we have to worry about? Are we on track for that? Does this make sense? Do these reach our goals? Um, and we want to be like working it for all of these things. Like technology is always involved. Don't, don't take it as like technology is not involved, but like all of us are coming together to look at these things together and decide if we have any trade-offs on that perspective too. Um, that might happen more frequently, let's say like on a monthly basis, right? Where we're going to be looking at that, trying to think if we have to refine or reprioritize or if anything came up on that level. Mm. So one of the big mistakes I see in this governance piece is that uh, instead of being high, you know, raising themselves up to these conversations of how the business is doing and what are their big pushes with leaders, they go and they ask for too too low level information, but there's not somebody in the middle either as a CPO or, um, you know, anybody in that area to be able to translate it back into, hey, no, actually, these are the things you should care about. Um, I actually had like a CEO once in a 5,000 developer company digging through Jira, trying to get information on like what was coming up because he had no transparency right into it. And I'm like, God, there's like tens of thousands more millions probably, Jira tickets in there. Like you're not going to find what you're looking for in there. And to be fair, he wasn't getting the right level of information he needed, right? He wasn't getting that roll up where he could actually look at it and make decisions, Mm. right? And he's going, what is everybody working on, right? Because they weren't seeing progress. He wasn't seeing meaningful progress. And to be fair, like to get to those big pushes, it does take a lot of work, right? It takes takes a long time. You're not going to see something come out every week um, that makes a meaningful push. So if we're connecting, you know, all the stuff that gets put into JIRA back into good roadmaps and and scoping it well and and talking about it at the right level, it usually eases the concerns of leadership, but it also helps direct them, right? Where they're not making these small kind of like, you know, nagging decisions. They're they're like, they're actually going, oh, like, hey, something's wrong with our enterprise market strategy. Because like we haven't been able to sign up anybody or we're churning them. So like what's going on with our initiatives? Oh wow, we are in progress to actually fix that problem. We've got 18 teams working on it. Fantastic, right? Check. Um, instead of like zooming all the way down and seeing just like one little aspect of that problem being solved, right? And not understanding how all of it comes together. 
And I think that's what's important about the governance is like keeping the information to the right people at the right level so that they can make the decisions that they were hired for. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, yeah, I also see so many companies doing it wrong. Um, and, and, and it's also easy to do it wrong, right. To, to, to really like yeah. in a QBR, um, really, really double down on, on, on a feature and, and, and then dig deeper and, and share ideas about that feature, et cetera. It, it's, it's not how it's supposed to be. So really, really great. Uh, lots of insights, really like lots of value. Um, I think like we have to move the discussion about the CTO versus the CPTO versus <laughs> CPO to the to yeah. next discussion then. <laughs> Would have loved discussing that. Um, but uh, maybe like before we close, um, three tips for our listeners from, 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 from yourself. Um, CTOs often trapped in the build trap. Like what can we do better? Yeah. Um... I love working with great CTOs. One thing that I could say is make sure that your technology strategy is not leading your product strategy. And if it is, right, if you feel like you are the person on the team carrying all the weight because you have a weak product leader, uh, bring that up to your CEO, right? Like let them know. Uh, I think that's important because I found that a lot of people just don't know what good looks like from a product leader. But if, you're, if your technology strategies lead your product strategies, it causes a lot of friction for everybody in the organization, and you will be stuck in the build trap, right? Like we're gonna be building some really cool tech and it's not going to be um, utilized correctly or sold correctly to our customers. And I, I believe all CTOs out there firmly want to deliver great value to their customers. I've never met a CTO that doesn't. So like, I think keep that in mind. And if you're not seeing that happening and you feel like you're getting way ahead of what the product strategy is doing, like come back, have a conversation with your product leaders. Um, if you can't realign, then, you know, bring, bring that up, surface those concerns. Um, but maybe first go talk to your product leader and like work with them and say like, Hey, maybe we should do these things together. Let's do that together. That's the second tip roadmap together with your product leader. So, um, you should never have like a tech roadmap that's not aligned with the product roadmap. So like get together in a room, right. And, and go through it. I worked with a a CTO at one company when we were hiring a chief product officer when I, when I was an advisor. And he was like, I don't, you know, I'm worried about having to, uh, you know, budget and work with this new product person. How, do, how does this work? And I'm like, you get together in a room and you plan out like based on your roadmap, what types of, you know, roles we need to fill. And then you, you be diplomatic about it, right? Like you say, we can't have, uh, 18 more developers and no product managers to like work with them. So like you balance, like you do these things together. And I think the stronger your bond is with your product leader peer, um, the better everybody works and the better everything comes, comes to play. So definitely be looking for that. Um, that also is going to help you get out of the build trap because you setting a good vision for that, setting a really good tone there, um, that really helps both organizations, both technology and both products. So they want to see a united front, right? Everybody in the organization, I think, wants to see that we're working together. Uh, and I don't think that's any different at leadership levels. Like we talk a lot about scrum teams and we talk a lot about agile teams or whatever you want to call it. And we are always like, they have to be balanced. And then as soon as you get to the leadership levels, everybody forgets that we're also a balanced team. So that's also maybe one more thing that I would say for the CTO is like, 
I tell my chief product officers this, like I run a, a CPO accelerator to, to help like VPs make the leap to CPO or help first-time CPOs. And I always tell them like, your job now is in your first team is the executive team. So like you need to be a part of it. Um, and where I see fantastic CTOs thrive is that they are part of that business discussion with the executive team, right? They're not just shirking it off to other people and saying, oh, sales and marketing will do that. They're like, I need to be involved. Like, I want to know what's going on. I desperately want to know, like, why we set the goals that we're setting. I want to give input into, you know, how we can reach them because we can't do that in isolation, right? The executive team can't set goals without understanding if we're capable of doing those things or how long it's going to take to do those things. And I think CTOs can help so much bring clarity to that, um, but they have to raise themselves up. And I, again, I say this to product people, it's not just CTOs, but you have to raise yourself up and see yourself as part of the executive mm. team and know that that's your first mm. team. Mm. And we have to be just as cross-functionally collaborative there as we expect our teams to be that are creating features. Thanks a lot. <laughs> very helpful. Very helpful. Um, so um, as an outro question, I, I still have a little surprise for you. Um, as you Ooh. serve on the board of Meister, um, I know Jim Allen, the CTO of Meister, and he he actually, hey, yeah, he's yeah. from Hamburg, like my hometown. And and he actually g gave me a little hint on, on an Easter egg that he secretly built into, oh, into, into Meister, uh, Meister's tool Mind. Um, it's called the time machine feature. Um, and it actually allows you, like with the tool, to travel physically back in time um, and, and, and yeah, maybe change the future a little bit. Um, and and we now we Love now it. use the tool. Um, let let's imagine we now use the tool to travel back in time to the year 2010 when you worked as product manager and software engineer <laughs> at the same time um, at Barclays Capital. And we observe yourself for a little while, like you you're coding um, and and do the management at the same time. Really brilliant. And you now have the chance to whisper something into um, into a, young Melissa's ears, uh, what would it be? Ooh, that's a good one. I love this. I think I would tell myself, this is probably my cringes stuff. Um, you don't know everything. So relax. <laughs> <laughs> I know younger Melissa was very precocious about certain things. And I've learned over time how to, how to I think, work better, especially with leadership. And with other people. And I, I think I'd whisper, like, you don't need you don't need to know everything and concentrate on building those relationships because that's what's going to get you far. Uh that that would be my biggest takeaway. Cause I think had I learned some of those things earlier, right? And you always have to fail sometimes to do it, but I could have saved myself a lot of headache. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Lots of wisdom today. Um, really helpful. Um, it was really great talking to you and uh, I hope to see you soon. And yeah, uh, folks, buy her books. <laughs> really great stuff. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Arcelist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. 
Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. AlphaList is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or, as we say on AlphaList, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.